This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ah, yes, the magnificent trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus Brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rest is Entertainment with me, Marina High. And me, Richard Osman. Week three. This week we're talking about Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift has been named Time's Person of the Year, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about Christmas number one, which for the first time in about 20 years is going to be exciting. You're going to take us on a thrill ride with that. Oh, it's going to be like a roller coaster, but it... with Christmas music. <laughs> that sounds like a great roller coaster. It, I... I would, I would certainly go. Have you been to Winter Wonderland? I'm... Every time I walk past it, I cross myself and thank the Lord for saving me from it. <laughs> it's actually much better if you go early in the morning, which is what I do. We digress. Then we're going to do a little catch up on the weekend's TV. There's a show called I'm a Celebrity. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes, we'll do the mop up on that. We'll do a mop up on that. And also we're going to be recommending books for Christmas. Great gifts you can give pretty much everybody. Shall we get started? Let's get started with Taylor Swift, shall we? Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine Person of the Year. Now, if you're one of our younger listeners and thinking, what is Time Magazine? Exactly. Taylor Swift is now much more famous than it. But every year that since I think the 1920s, they've made somebody Person of the Year. Actually, it was Man of the Year uh, until it? 1999. Wow. And I think only 11 women have actually ever had this thing. You know, it's often it's politicians or um, sort of peacemakers or um, kind of international figures. Last year, it was Vladimir Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian president. This year, it is Taylor Swift. Uh, did, did he hand over the baton at a ceremony? It were, I mean, it would have been great. They don't actually do that. But they have basked in the reflected glory of Taylor Swift being named their person of the year, which is a sort of reflection in some ways as, as to what she's doing in all over all over the place. They've, they Now when they think that her tour, her era's tour, passes through somewhere like, e.g. the great state of Missouri, it will provide an economic bump because of all the consumer spending that there's a sort of uplift around it. Weren't they saying, didn't the, the, the banks in America say it's genuinely had an impact on the GDP of the entire country. Yes. That's a lot of pressure. Yes, but what I find quite annoying about it, I have noticed that people have started talking about Taylor Swift now as an economic story, and they call it Swiftonomics. And it's sort of like, <laughs> now she's making, now oh, now she's an economic story. We can pay attention to her and write about her. And there are a lot of these really kind of repressed people who, I just, I hope we never do that on this podcast, is talk about things because they make money in entertainment. It's this kind of awful financial fig leaf that thinks, oh, now because she she makes a lot of money, you know, that, that will give us a gravitas to be able to talk about this. Well, I think that's just a load of bollocks, okay? Because... We talk about these things, I hope, and entertainment on this on this podcast because they matter to people, because they make people laugh or cry or because they reflect their love back to them or anything. Maybe they make them despair. But 
it doesn't matter because something is economically successful in and of itself. Money can be a useful metric and a lens to look at some of the things we look at. But I do think that people who can only talk about Taylor Swift because she is, you know, kind of providing some sort of economic bump now are kind of desiccated and beaten. I think that's right. I mean, I don't talk about Chico because he makes money. I talk about Chico because <laughs> I love Chico. Am I right? I can't wait for your Christmas number one. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right. It's become an economic story. And actually, it's a cultural story. She's become an extraordinary phenomenon. So she's made an extraordinary amount of money through various business dealings this year, which I'm sure you'll get onto. But really, what she is, she's sort of a colossus who is in charge of the entirety of world culture currently. Well, it's funny. First of all, she gives an interview to Time, which it's is great. so unusual because the interview's great. We'll come on to that. But which is so unusual because she no longer really gives interviews. She doesn't actually need to give interviews any longer. She's a sort of unmediated figure in a way. I mean, even recently, the New York Times profiled her. And for my money, the best writer in all Anglophone newspapers is someone called Taffy broderson Acne, who does the profiles for the New York Times. She is incredible. And normally her profiles will involve thinking a lot about the celebrity in question and also spending time with an interview. But Taylor Swift didn't even need to do that. Nevertheless, the resultant profile is absolutely extraordinary. But the, she has given an interview to Time, which is very unusual. But yeah, I think you're right. She is a sort of she's a sort of person of one. In this kind of fragmented world of culture that we live in now, we didn't think necessarily that you could have celebrities of the size and pop stars of the scale that you had, say, back in the 80s, like, you know, Madonna, Michael Jackson. But she, age 33, is up there. They call her in this interview the main character of the world. Which That's I think is a really be, good line. It? And I also, they also call her the master storyteller. It's a tad much, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, who would you say? Maybe like J.K. Rowling might be up there. You might have Marvel might be up there. But Stephen in, King. Stephen, Stephen King. Okay, but... I think what they're referring to there, and they, they talk about it in that article, which is very interesting, is that thing that the stories we tell now are the stories of ourselves. Yes. You know, that's who we are. We present ourselves in a certain way. And they conclude there that the thing about Taylor is she's just better at that than anybody else. There's a lovely quote from one of her fans saying, look, she writes all about herself, but I'm not interested in her. I'm interested in what it means about me. You know, so she uses her story to tell other people's story. That's absolutely what she does. And I suppose that's her sort of message. Never feel ashamed of yourself in any era in which you're going through. That's just her era's tour, which is yes. um, take control of your own life. Take back what people took from you. This is an important point we'll come back to and, and tell your own story. So she's a master storyteller in the way that if you're Stephen King, if, if I'm sitting at home as an 18-year-old, I'm probably not going to meet a clown in a drain. Whereas I probably am going to have a have, have a breakup with somebody and then get back together with them and then break up again. So that, it has more relevance to me than perhaps, I was going to say, has more relevance than a writer being murdered by an uh, obsessed fan. But then I thought, oh, that could actually happen to me. But... The clown in the drain I stick by. That's probably not going to happen. If you were murdered by a clown in a drain. Oh, no. that would be This would be played forever. Make, it would be. Make sure you're Me on, laughing. I'd yeah. be retrospectively cancelled for laughing. No, but the money you'd make really from it. Think, yeah, you're right. If you've got the rights bit where I talk about not being murdered by a clown in a drain... Oh I am then murdered by a clown in a drain. World's greatest true crime podcast. <laughs> you are going to be richer than Taylor. You're right. Okay, so it's not, I mean, maybe both outcomes are fine. And by Taylor, I mean Taylor Swift, not Dennis Taylor. Be even, you'd be <laughs> even richer than Taylor Swift. So she, they say she's the first ever music billionaire. The single tour is going to make more than a billion and it's um, obviously rolled out around the world. These incredible things happen. You know, when the ticket master for that tour, there was some sort of failing with it, they had a Senate hearing about it 
there are multiple, multiple fan lawsuits for against sort of Ticketmaster because they weren't able to get tickets. I mean, everything is this kind of extraordinary heightened thing. It must be so hard to be her and to essentially have no peer group. People who, I mean, her squad, all these famous women who she hangs around with a lot, you know, she came all the way over to Beyonce's Renaissance tour movie that opened in uh, London just very recently, the last couple of weeks. She flew over and presented at the premiere. You know, she is a, she raises people up and she has all her girlfriends but it is nonetheless hard to be I mean really in a sort of culture of one I think yeah hard to be Taylor hard to be Taylor but, but you're right and she she talks about the money is interesting in the context that the money that she has made and that Beyonce has made she said the lovely thing is once people realize that women's art makes money then women are allowed to make more art and that's the yeah. point the money to her is an end to make more art she sees money as keeping score and as you say of getting a group of people who wouldn't have previously been interested in what it is she does or would have dismissed it as a frippery to take it seriously another female artist a former American Idol winner Kelly Clarkson was the person who gave her the idea one of the things that Taylor Swift is doing currently which you may or may not be aware of but I'm sure you will be is the masters of her first six albums were sold against her will she was trying to buy them back herself but they were sold anyway and she was so angry and so distressed about this because she felt like she She wanted to control her story and, you know, her own music. And it was Kelly Clarkson who said to her, why don't you just like record them all over again? Do new artwork, do them almost exactly the same, but do new artwork and maybe a couple of other little things. And that is what she is actually doing. She is going through every single one of those albums and she's recording the Taylor's versions of them. So this is really taking back what life took from you. Yeah, the guy, a guy called Scooter Braun, yeah. who's Justin Bieber's manager, he essentially owns the rights to the original recordings but all he owns is the rights to the recordings right essentially the tapes he's literally got those physical tapes that's what he owns uh, and yes yeah, so she has called his bluff and another thing she's done this year she's put the film of the eras tour the concert tour instead of um, getting it sort of distributed to package it up and then sell it to the movie theaters she sold it direct into movie theaters so much about what she is about is cutting out the middleman and it is often a man let's face it and that opened bigger than a marvel movie and i suspect it's what's going to happen more and more and more is is stars are going to take control of their own narrative and their own ip and the stuff that they own and the stuff that they write and the stuff that they make now the key thing for taylor listen you can be as smart a business brain as you want she makes great music continues to make great music is a brilliant songwriter herself collaborates with brilliant people phoebe bridges um you know the guys from the national is always around brilliant people and that's what you have to have it doesn't matter how smart you are or what story you tell about yourself the content has to work you have to keep releasing great stuff which she does but in the interview she settles a few scores right well, which I love, by the way. And I have seen some people saying, oh, why she got brought up this old beef in Time magazine? It's like, OK, Hitler was Time magazine's person of the year in 1938. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of beef, OK? People, I mean... <laughs> he was all beef, wasn't he? He was, I mean, 100% beef. Having said that, this is the Wagyu beef, what Taylor brings up in this interview, because this, what she does is she resurrects this whole drama with um, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, which I'm going to put the bare bones on it for those who don't know it, because it does actually date back, I think, about 14 years. The barest, barest bones are Taylor is getting her award for best video at the uh, VMAs, the MTV Video Awards. And Kanye gets on stage and grabs the microphone off her and says, sorry, sorry, I'm going to let you finish in a minute. Uh, I just want to say that Beyonce had a, essentially, Beyonce had a better music video this year. It was so unbelievably sort of horrific. Um, and she was really young and it was a, you know, she was basically 19 and it was a, it's kind of a terrible thing to happen. Anyway, 
sometime later, he released a song about her, Kenny, called Famous, saying that they might end up having sex together and saying, I made that bitch famous. And he said that Taylor had approved the lyrics. Now, <laughs> Taylor said she hadn't re- approved them all. And no then kidding. Kim Kardashian released a covert phone recording, which turned out to have been edited, although people didn't know that at the time, implying that she had approved all this. And then so the internet called Taylor a snake. And as she's really clear in this interview... It completely broke her. She moved to another country, which is widely assumed to be the UK. She said she didn't really come out of her rental house for a year. She was afraid to take phone calls. She honestly believed that everything she'd worked for had been taken away from her. I say yes, and in the interview, she she has one thing to say about uh, Kim and Kanye. Yeah, she doesn't say it directly in the bit she's talking about Kim and Kanye because I think that would be too sledgehammer for her, but it's really classy. It comes out later and she says, trash takes itself out every single time. That's nice, oh. isn't it? I mean, that's why it's not about money. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not about, about getting money. your own and back on there. Uh, she's very good about not liking to be compared to Beyonce because she's like, oh, just because we're both women, we get compared all the time. But I do feel, given the context here, I am going to compare her to Kim Kardashian because I think that's really interesting. They're two of very different kinds of kind of extreme female fame at this time in, in our culture. I, so he once said to Kim, are you a feminist? And she said... I don't think I am. I just want to do what makes me happy. And to me, she is just like a pure expression of individualism. She can't really conceive of any kind of collectivism. And Taylor Swift is sort of all about collectivism. There are people like Taylor, Lady Gaga, who've got their little monsters, their Swifties, you know. Why doesn't Kim have a name for her fans? I think she just thinks of all women as kind of atomised consumers. Fascinating that they're both insanely successful, have both worked out how to use the media, but I honestly think the difference between the two is Taylor produces something. Taylor has something that will endure. Taylor can get yeah, up Yeah, more and than can, shapewear. More than shapewear. <laughs> that would endure even shaped, more shaped than that. So, listen, I'm glad they both exist and I'm glad they both find a way to, uh, to, to, to you know, um, express themselves, but Taylor is the one who's producing and creating and will have a legacy and we'll be talking about in 50 years and 100 yeah. years' time. I'm glad Kim exists because I think there need to be monsters in the culture. There need to be villains so that there can be heroines. But that is how I see how they fall on that side of the divide. I think it's great. I think she's amazing. And I think if you were growing up now as a teenager, what an incredible role model to have somewhere in the middle of culture. I think she's a force for good. I think she's incredibly talented. And it's very nice that she's making the money and not a series of faceless men who would have made the money in the 80s and 90s. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Talking of a series of faceless men (laughs) making money in the 80s and 90s. (laughs) So that's why I get the big bucks, Marina. Segways. Segways is what I do. (laughs) Christmas number one. Gripped. I want to talk about it because it's been boring for about 20 years, Christmas number one, for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, the reality shows, X Factor and what have you, which had a stranglehold on it. And for the last five years, Lad Baby. Please explain Lad Baby for people who somehow don't know. (laughs) Um, Lad Baby, they're a married couple, and every year they do a Christmas song. All the money goes to Trussell Trust. So that's fine. But it's always, you know, I love sausage rolls. They're always food related. Yeah, Uh, instead of I love rock and roll, it would be I love sausage rolls. Yeah, Yeah, there's a sort of non-brand Greg's theme to it all. There is a non-brand Greg's theme. Greg's Mm. not an official partner, but arguably should have been. Anyhow. We should be sponsored by non-brand Greg's. We should be sponsored by sausage rolls. I would be very happy. Just sausage rolls as a concept. I consume. (laughs) Yes. Oh, um, I I hear Taylor is doing their work now. Um, (laughs) So for the last five years, they've been Christmas number one, which is a record by an absolute mile. But the reason I want to talk about Christmas number one this year is this year they have pulled out of the race. And 
I confidently predict that it'll be one of four songs is going to be Christmas number one, and whichever one it is, it's going to make history. Ooh. Okay. I'm going to predict uh, who it is later. Now, Christmas number one wasn't really a thing until about 1973, which is when Slade did Merry Christmas, Everybody. There'd been a couple of Christmas number ones in the 50s. There'd been Mary's Boy Child yeah. and Christmas Alphabet. But I think after Phil Spector's Christmas album, everyone went, oh, we can do this. So Slade and Wizard went head to head in, in 73. Slade won it. Wizard had, uh, I wish it could be Christmas every day, which didn't get to number one. And then you have the sort of glory days of Christmas number ones and you had Cliff and you've got Wham and, you know, the Pogues and all these things. Am I right in thinking that this is a really UK phenomenon actually and that they're not obsessed with this particular spot in the charts for that one week? In the US in the same way. Yes, they're obsessed with Christmas songs. Yeah. So Gene Autry, who had some of the biggest selling songs of all, all time, because he did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and he did Frosty the Snowman. And these were, you forget that somebody sat down and wrote those songs. Yeah. Right. And they sold like millions and millions and millions. And virtually every one of those Christmas songs, White Christmas, all that, they, they were all, when you look into them, they were all written in like half an hour in LA in June. Like like <laughs> all of them. Uh, respect it. Yeah, exactly. And and. Uh, become these huge hits. But in the UK, the Christmas number one has sort of gone out of fashion. There's only been seven songs ever to be Christmas number one with the word Christmas in the title. And that's if we're including Slade, which is Xmas. But I am including of it. it is. The last Christmas number one, the last actual Christmassy song, was nearly 20 years ago. It was 2004, and it was uh, Band Aid 20. Oh, yes. Do They Know It's Christmas? Yep. Um, which, by the way, Tom York's only ever number one single. There you go. There's a there's a fact for you. That is yeah. That is quite a fact. There's some unusual people on on that band aid. Tom York's on it. The guys from Supergrass are on it. Neil Hannon from Divine Comedy is on it. Really? I must go yeah. back and look at the group show. Whereas the previous one is like big fun. Yeah. And, the pre- that uh, was a uh, that was an that was the Nadir. And 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 people like that. But so this year, who's going to win? Because always there's some unlikely contenders. You know, there's always a, a no one quite like Grandma. St. Winifred's yeah. School Choir, that was number one. Save Your Love, Renny and Renato. Mr. Blobby had a number one. By the way, anyone, any detectives at home, I was looking into who wrote various yeah. um, Christmas songs, which is always quite interesting. Mr. Blobby, it's almost, I can't work out who wrote it. Sia? So, <laughs> I don't, I don't, hold on. She writes some more, doesn't yeah, she? I'm being told it's Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, you can't work out, it's got a name on the label, but that doesn't seem to be someone who actually exists. Amazing. Just, so, I can't put my name, literally can't put my name to this. I will kill you if you put my name to this song. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those ones that no <laughs> one's claiming. Yeah. I mean, it's probably Noel because he'll want the money for it. But uh, uh, Bob the Builder, all the X Factor stuff, Rage Against the Machine, that was the last funny oh, Christmas number really one. I really wanted to talk about that. Great. Because I loved it. This was when, this was in 2009 when we were in the, the Simon Cal bestrode entertainment like a mm. colossus, the karaoke Sauron. His eye was staring down at us at all moments. And he, his artist that year, you know, who was a guy called Joe McKeldry. Yeah. And he sort of just got to the end of the saturation of Cal having this number one every single year with the X Factor winner. And so some people just started a Facebook campaign to get Rage Against the Machines Killing in the Name of to be Christmas number one. And first of all, you couldn't even buy it. It's the first download only number one, I believe. And Cowell was so affronted that this was happening. Two things are interesting about this. Well, first of all, he kept saying, you're not doing this to me. They're not They're not hurting me. They're hurting this poor young man, Joe McKeldry, who, by the way, Simon Cowell would drop from the record label in 15 months. So, you know, yes, I agree, poor young man, but for different reasons. And also, but they were on the same record label. Cowell and Rage Against right? the Machine. And Rage Against the Machine 
say that the record label were really angry about it. Never, they kept trying to call their record label to say, this is amazing, what's happening with our song? Um, and the record company just didn't call them back, obviously didn't issue, reissue this, it as a single, so it had to be download only. But the, the campaign was successful and, you know, t- Simon Cowell was overthrown in a, I mean, truly heartwarming, not not quite up there with It's a Wonderful Life, but kind of like the next tier down of Christmas <laughs> of Christmas miracles. We saw, I was, I'd love to write a Christmas movie and that's the, that's what I'm going to write a Christmas movie about, is the destruction of Simon Cowell's Christmas number one hopes for Joe McEldry. Joe McEldry, <laughs> by the way, I've met is absolutely lovely. Yeah. I was once, this is such a digression, but yeah, sorry. I, I, I want some... I once went to a festival uh, in Spain with my brother's band, Suede, and you're driving up around the Pyrenees in this coach, and it's like really terrifying, like hairpin bends. But then I was thinking, listen, it's okay because these drivers do it all day, every day. And then the next day, Rage Against the Machines coach went down the mountain. They were fine, but it went off the road. So anyway, that's uh, that's all I have oh to say God. about that. Um, so Rage Against the Machine was the last funny one. This year, there's a few unlikely contenders. There's Nala, the Stevenage Station cat. She's done a song called Check Me Out, which is a, a Christmas song which I've listened to so you don't have to. Like Rage Against the Machine, a lot of realness. Talking of realness, Sleaford Mods have got a Christmas number one contender. Ah. Uh, they've cover version of West End Girls. Okay. They? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's fine. Which I love. Sooty has done a version of the Nolan's I'm in the Mood for Dancing. Can, can you guess what he's called it? No, I can't. But I'd the, like you to tell me. I'm in the Mood for Christmas. Oh, are Sweep and Sue on it? They are, but they do not get, uh, as always, they do not get top yeah. bidding. EMF have teamed up with Stephen Fry. Oh, my God. I know, to do a song called Hello People, but uh, that's all. That's for Shelter, I, I think, it. as well. Anyway, look, those are the unlikely contenders, but there's four that are going to win it. Likely. Before I go on to them, my three favourites, Christmas number one facts, if you can bear it. I, I will love this. Um, this first one, this rather realise, you know, like how you get old, Yes. And you suddenly realise that other people don't know your references. Yes. And you talk to young people. I'm going to tell a story now about Thora Heard. Amazing. Okay. Yes. I'm looking around. Anybody? Thanks for joining us, everyone. There's some youngsters. Uh, <laughs> Tony knows Thora Heard. There he is. The Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, was written by Thora Heard's son-in-law. No. Yeah. How about that? Mel Torme. Written no. in half an hour, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. And stupidly called the Christmas song because they have to constantly put brackets you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, because <laughs> otherwise no one knows the one they're talking about. Talking of people who write Christmas songs, Mistletoe and Wine, Christmas Richard. number one, Cliff Richard, that was written by the same man who wrote the theme tune to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Really? Yeah, it made absolutely millions. Keith Strachan wrote the millionaire theme with his I'd like to son. talk to him about a couple of the lyric, the couplets in that, which are not acceptable, not the millionaire theme. The Christ- Mistletoe and Wine. Yeah, Mistletoe and Wine, Christian Rhyme unacceptable as a couplet in do you think nobody has ever said the phrase christian rhyme at all so if you've had to do that you've had to make it go and i think you should have come up with something else every christmas eve i think christmas eve mistletoe and steve and i don't know why i can never get out of my head so now i can put it in your head as well but merry christmas everyone by shaky which is a classic they were supposed to release in the same year as band-aid but they realized band-aid was coming out they thought this song is too good so they, they held it back for an entire year anyway that was written wow. by, by Bob Heatley, who wrote the theme tune to Pat Sharp's Funhouse. Again, thank you for the references. Absolute pleasure. My final one is Christmas Rapping by The Waitresses. So that's the song, yes. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, yeah. which the Spice Girls did a yes. cover version of, and it's a great song. Uh, and the guy who wrote Christmas Rapping, Chris Butler, um, made some money out of the Spice Girls cover version of Christmas Rapping, so bought a house in Ohio, 
was shown around this house. It was much cheaper than he thought it was going to be because it was big. So he bought this house with the Christmas wrapping money. And the reason it was so cheap, he found out later, it was Jeffrey Dahmer's house. So the money that the Spice Girls made him was spent on Jeffrey Dahmer's house. Most of us would pull out of the of the, <laughs> of the wow. purchase. But that he, took me somewhere unexpected. He went, I know, right? Yeah. You did yeah. not think I was going to go from Pat Sharp's fun house to Jeffrey Dahmer quite that That's, quickly. It's quite a lot of levels below It's a Wonderful Life in terms of Christmas spirit, yes. <laughs> it that is, is quite it is a, a little few, bit. Yeah. Good fact, though. Spice Girls have had a few. They've had three, I think. They had three in a row, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Beatles did three in a row. Spice Girls did three in a row. And then Lad Baby. Came along with they five got in involved row. in the cult. They were sort of taken up in the culture wars. Like everything, nothing can be out in the culture wars. People thought that they think that they voted conservative in 2019, and that therefore the fact that the, all the records were always in support of the trust or trust. They say you know by doing things in aid of food banks, uh, essentially you're legitimising food banks, which is quite a leap. And it's not at all clear that they voted conservative in the 2019 general election. But anyway, these, this poor sort of couple who had done quite a lot for charity seemed to have got completely caught up in the, the culture war. I don't know if it was legitimate or not, but anyway, perhaps that's why they pulled out. They thought perhaps they'd have a good is. run and they don't want to do it anymore. That's the thing. The thing that's really changed now is streaming counts towards Christmas number one. Okay, so all the old Christmas songs are back. So last week's top 10, eight of the top 10 are Christmas songs, including the okay. four that I'm going to talk about. Shaky, Bobby Helm's Jingle Bell Rock, Really? Which is in the top ten. Buble <laughs> has Mr. got, uh, yeah, beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Biggest selling Christmas song of the 21st century, Buble. And also Ed Sheeran's Christmas song is there. 15 of the top 20 are Christmas songs, including Underneath the Tree, which I think is the best of the 21st century Christmas songs, Kelly Clarkson, uh, and Snowman by Sia, which I think is the other one, both written by the same person. But anyway, I digress. Some of the classics are not anywhere. Slade, Merry Christmas to Everybody, is like the 28th best-selling Christmas song at, at the moment. Uh, Stop the Cavalry is 37th, and East 17, 53rd. Okay, we'll stay another day. So there's going to be four songs that it could be between. Fairy Tale of New York, of course. Okay, never been Christmas number one. Shane McGowan's obviously just died. Shane McGowan and... passed away. So that's the bookie's favourite, Fairy Tale of New York. Last Christmas has never been Christmas number one. It's been number one, but never Christmas number one. Ah, okay. okay. So this year could be the first time. All I Want for Christmas is You has never been Christmas number one. It was kept off number one in its original time by Stay Another Day by E17. So it's going to be between those three, Fairy Tale of New York, Last Christmas, uh, All I Want for Christmas is You, all of which I'd be happy with. But at the last minute, although Lad Baby have pulled out, the producers of Lad Baby have come up with another song. They've got together a group of people who are famous on TikTok uh, they're called the Creators Universe. Yeah, I've seen this, yeah. Uh, and they've released a version of I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day by Wizard, which has also never been Christmas number one. So if you'd asked me last week, I'd have said last Christmas will be number one, I think. Pogues are the favourite. I don't think it will be. I think that uh, I think Wham are the favourite. But they might just be beaten by Creators Universe. I wish it could be Christmas Every Day. And the reign of Lad Baby will continue just under a different name. I mean that's a lot of a lot of jeopardy. The, like they'll be the puppet president in the in the way that Medvedev was to Putin for some time. Yes, exactly that. They'll continue sort to of, pull the strings, lad baby. They will continue to pull the lad baby strings. Yeah, but if it is, it's raising money for Trussell Trust. It's Christmas, and at least there's a race finally this year. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! 
and even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back. Now, I think I we did promise a little bit of cleanup on I'm a Celebrity, yes. uh, which finished last night. We're recording this on a Monday. Uh, and Nigel Farage has finished third in another election. Uh, not the first time, may not be the last. And um, the winner was Sam Thompson. So Sam Thompson, who is from Made in Chelsea, uh, so is one of those people you're sort of aware of in the culture somewhere, but not quite who they are or what they do. But now we're all aware of him. Absolutely. He is now, He's he has the world at his feet, Richard. He has and, the world at his feet. And afterwards, he wasn't met by Zara, his lovely partner, who was in Strictly this year. He was met by his podcast partner, Pete Wicks. Who is another very interesting character, I would say. But the two, the lovely two of them just hugging on the bridge at the end. Just the endless bromance of it all. It'd be like if Alistair Campbell went into the jungle, which I'd pay good money for, him coming out and, and Rory Stewart giving him a hug. I could see Rory in the jungle. I think yes. Rory could handle it because he's got that kind of boarding school thing where, you know, he, 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 he's probably used to it. You'd never do it, right? Oh, don't be stupid. That's one of my anxiety dreams, that I wake up and I'm in a reality show. Oh. I used to dream about getting married to the wrong person. Yeah. I think I've told you this before. And then you did that. And then I, then I got married. <laughs> so, then, and I, since, I had my, since I was married nearly 25 years ago, I haven't had that dream. But I've dreamt almost solidly since then because it was that was in 1999 and pretty soon after that was Big Brother. I dreamt I was waking up in either the Big Brother house or on, on a reality format that is already going and I'm on it and I somehow can't escape. Yeah. You know what? That's life though, isn't it? We're all living, in, we're living in a reality format. Don't you think? We're all in the Truman Show, Richard. Most you think, doesn't it? it? Yeah. My anxiety dream is waking up and I'm on a podcast. <laughs> I'm like, no, come on. Um, I just was, it was so lovely. Sam Thompson and Tony Bellew's relationship is one of the most beautiful male friendships I've ever seen depicted on screen. <laughs> and I'm a Brokeback Mountain fan. I think you could tell that Farage had this campaign to try and vote for him, but you... you uh, Eventually, you can't defeat the beast of a proper big television show. You can, you can come third. No, it's interesting. He had a very, very concerted campaign. And talking to people sort of around the show, there was a coordinated voting campaign. But it's really from people who aren't watching the show. GB News pushed it, active, he, where he has a show, actively pushed for viewers to vote for him all the time. They gave them the full instructions and said, you get five free votes. Here's how you do it. So I think that it's quite skewed in some way to regard that vote as a, as a result of sort of ordinary I'm a celebrity viewers, his social media was round the clock telling people how to do it. And I I really think that a huge number of the people voting for him weren't actually watching the show. The interesting thing about that is in the old days when we were making Big Brother and all sorts of things, voting was a huge deal. It made an awful lot of money. There were an awful lot of votes. That's disappeared. Yeah. It's gone. There are no votes left, really. Well, there and were many phone vote scandals. So it, There absolutely were. So now the money is not in there. Now for the first few weeks of I'm a Celebrity, 
you can keep anybody in that you want to keep in. If we could have a campaign, you could, you know, you could have kept Frankie de Tory in if you'd really wanted to. But when you actually get to the last episode, there are a lot of votes because you're voting yeah. for the, the king of the jungle. And that's, you, you can't really gain. Even with phone banks, it's really quite it's hard. It's really difficult. But the bookies always had Farage third favourite or fourth favourite all the way through because they know how this show works. If, if you've got a group of people who are going to vote for you, you're going to make it quite a long way through. You're going to beat Danielle Harold. But it was, um, God, it was fascinating. The last episode when there's the three of them, Tony and, and Sam, who love each other so much, and, and Nigel Farage sitting around eating dinner. And Tony and Sam were just talking to each other about what a wonderful time they'd had. And Nigel Farage was sitting there. I, I think that what I hope is that he's been well treated by the other campmates there because you, you can't not treat people well if you're living together for so long. And I sort of wonder if it, it's the first time he hasn't been either A, lauded or B, hated by people for a long time and whether that actually might be quite useful for him to have been around ordinary people, doing ordinary things, treating him like an ordinary human being. And I wonder if it might... Um, oh, no, people don't change. But I think Sam... I don't think people change. You don't think no one no. changes? No, I don't. I think people just become more exaggerated versions of themselves in one way or another. And the sooner you learn that in life, the more time you'll save. And that's great. Thank you. Uh, now, a few recommendations. Christmas. It's coming. Yes. I hope people don't get their news from us. No. What, what, wait, what now? Breaking. Christmas Breaking. round the corner. I think a book is the best present because they can be quite cheap, but they genuinely have some meaning. Well, and you they can have be some giving thought. someone a whole new world. Do you give novels at Christmas? Sometimes I do. I, I, I think that booksellers want you to buy a hardback. That's the business we're all in because booksellers, publishers, authors all make more money out of the hardbacks. And so the Christmas gifting market is a huge thing. And, you know, if you've got the money to spend on a hardback, great. But there are lots of cheaper options as well. And by the way, I would say if you can, if you're going to buy a book, buy it from a local bookshop, which are going great guns at the moment, but always worth supporting. Uh, and if you're not near one, bookshop.org is sort of like an Amazon, but for independent bookshops. Yes. So you can order anything you want and the money can go to a, you know, a, a bookshop that you choose. So yeah, I'd sometimes I give novels. The thing, thing I'm giving someone this year is a book called The Wager by David Gran. Uh, now, David Grant is the guy who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon ah. that the Scorsese movie is based on. He did The Lost City of Zed. So he writes these big uh, non-fiction narratives. And this is about, you know, when you read about doomed voyages of ships, right? He writes about the most doomed voyage of the most doomed ship of all time, the ship called The Wager and the journey it goes on. It's so great. He's an amazing writer, right. uh, but it's one of those ones that it's the, the narrative is so compelling. God, I'm it's, ashamed to say I've never heard of The Wager, so I... It's this, really, this really, really good. If you know anybody in your family who likes that sort of thing, then this is exactly the version of that sort of thing that they will like. So The Wager is my, is my first recommendation. I'm sticking in the area of entertainment. This is my number one book. Okay, Werner Herzog, the filmmaker, his memoir, which is, of course, called Every Man for Himself and God Against All. <laughs> Anyone if you're in your life who likes films, if they don't know about Herzog, you'll know so much after this. He is a true restless artist. In our writer's room recently, um, someone was reading this and every morning would come in 
with genuinely hysterical anecdotes. He is a, I mean, he's in a category of one. You can't believe that a person like this sort of stalks the earth. And obviously, you'll you may well know sort of famous stories like Fitzcarraldo, the movie he wrote about, which is a sort of about a rubber baron who gets this unattainable patch where he can extract rubber from, but he has to. There's you can't get there by river in the conventional way. So they had to drag a steamship up a mountain in the Andes and down the other side. Herzog makes this movie and he makes the crew do this. I mean, it is completely batshit. This is the sort of thing you're dealing with. The leading man is Klaus Kinski, who Herzog has had a long and kind of tortured um, relationship with. Kinski is even more mad than usual, gets off the plane and says to the people who are doing hair and makeup, not even my hairdresser touches my hair. <laughs> Uh, One of the crew, crew is bitten by a snake and sores his own foot off. Um, the local tribe, um, the head of the local tribe, many of whom played extras throughout the film, eventually offer to kill Kinski for Herzog, who declines just on the basis that otherwise we're never going to get this film finished. Uh, this is just I one see, anecdote. That's the age-old problem for a director, isn't it? Uh, I is, mean, with the actors, you want to kill them, you, but, but you've uh, you got to finish the film. And you've got offers to kill yeah, them. Yeah. But you, anyway, but th that's all documented in an amazing documentary called The Burden of Dreams. But if you don't even know about about Herzog, a complete original and an amazing person, and often unintentionally, but hysterically funny because it's so surreal the things he gets himself into. What's the title again? Sorry, it is Werner Herzog, and yep. it's Every Man for Himself and God Against All. And we'll put all these details on our episode page as well. Um, if you do want a novel, and if you want something you can pick up for a couple of quid at a secondhand bookshop, there's a novel which I think I've given to more people than any other novel in my whole life. Wow. It's a novel I don't think anyone has ever disliked and it's JL Carr's A Month in the Country so it's really short it's, it's going to sound terrible it's about someone coming back from the First World War and going up to a, a, a Yorkshire village for the summer to uncover a mural in an old church that's the job that this guy is doing but JL Carr is such an extraordinary writer it's beautiful it's funny it's nostalgic and it's short which is amazing. And I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't love this book. They made a movie of it with um, Kenneth Branagh and Colin Firth. It's just one of those books that sounds like it's going to be boring. And it's just sort of you, oh, it's wonderful. you absolutely I... fall in love with it. Yeah. J.L. Carr wrote whatever he wanted. He did a book about imagining a village team winning the FA Cup final. And he just sort of plots their entire course from like the first qualifying round all the way through to the final. He did not care what he wrote. If he had an idea in his head, he wrote it. But uh, A Month in the Country, I think, is an absolute masterpiece. And I've never met anybody who didn't love that book. Okay, wonderful. I My other recommended book is also nonfiction um, in entertainment. And it's A Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward, which is by Oliver Soden. And first of all, he's a young author. And I really think that his verve and way of handling the subject completely breathes new life into it. He's also had access to private diaries and things that have not been put in previous biographies. And it's an absolutely extraordinary story of someone who, in some ways, people felt was, you know, quite, they were quite conventional. He wrote drawing room comedies in their view or whatever. But in fact, he makes a really great case, Oliver Soden, of how much more radical and subversive he is. He obviously has to live this incredibly kind of secretive and actually very kind of distressing private life in lots of ways. But there are also moments, I mean, my sort of high camp hilarity, his adolescence, if you ever have met an obnoxious teenager, I strongly doubt you've <laughs> met one quite as obnoxious as this. Even though he was just a sort of suburban boy who loved theatre, I really recommend it. It's a fascinating look at somebody who is still relevant 50 years after his death, surprisingly often given some of the things he covered. These are some good recommendations, I think, because yeah. they're very different... 
I'm going to finish with a couple of other things. Um, Ade Edmondson's autobiography oh, it's brilliant. is amazing. It's absolutely Berserker. Brilliant. Berserker. If you've got a, like a young adult, sort of nine, almost Catherine Rundell's Impossible Creatures. She's like the new J.R.R. Tolkien. She's or the new Philip everything. Holman. She's absolutely yeah. wonderful. She won. I mean, she won the Bailey Gifford Prize for this extraordinarily intricate kind of but and but incredibly exciting biography of John Donne. But she also writes children's books. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I would strongly recommend it. And Christmas Number One, I think this year, talking of Christmas Number Ones, the, the the book world has a Christmas Number One, and I think it's going to come completely out of left field. And it's an object in if you give something a great title. You might just be okay. You remember those logic puzzle books you used to do, where mm. you'd have to work out like who killed someone or what room something was in. It and it'd be like a man with a hat is not carrying an umbrella or something. So you cross little things out. Yes. So there's this guy G. F. Kerber who's done a whole book full of these these logic puzzles, which are fun if you like a logic puzzle. Um, but it's called Myrtle. Uh, and it's become, it's become an absolute phenomenon. It's sold every week. It's selling more and more and more. And I think that's going to be Christmas number one. And that's a perfect stocking filler for anyone who likes playing a little game, Myrtle. Oh, that's fantastic. I will do that. And that's us done, I think. Did I say at the beginning? Did, you that, told me you had a board game to recommend. Yes. Shall I do that? Can to, you to, please? To finish off with. Because it's hard with board games, isn't it? I like a bit of triv and stuff like that. But when you've got family around of different generations, my daughter bought us this board game. And it's called Wavelength. And I won't go into the rules, because rules of board games are absolutely incomprehensible. But it's sort of a mind-reading game that you have to try and get people to read your mind with the use of a plastic dial. Uh, and it's funny, oh, it and it's really one of those ones where there's lots of talking, and it's a, good, it's a really good team game. If you've got, you know, 4v4 or something like that. Uh, it's a really, really great game, and so, so few games come along. I always used to get in trouble because the pointless board game was so terrible, and people always thought it was my fault, and it was nothing, never anything to do with me, because I agreed. I'd looked at it, and the rules are absolutely incomprehensible. <laughs> so it just used the... They they at least have like the answer things you could use those but uh, but wavelength. I okay, great. speaking of mind reading games, there's also a kind of small card game that's really good that you play in a team called the Mind, and it's such that it is so incredibly simple. I won't even bother explaining the rules, but that is absolutely great and it's really weird and it makes you think about human behaviour and herd behaviour and it couldn't be simpler. And I thoroughly oh, thoroughly great. recommend that. So wavelength and the mind. Yeah. I mean, Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> absolutely. Next week, I think we'll be talking a little bit more about Christmas, maybe we'll looking have some at Christmas, Christmas telly and all that kind of. Uh, all that kind of stuff. One of the things we'd love you to do is send us any questions because we are going to do a special questions episode over uh, Christmas and New Year. And the address is therestersentertainment at gmail.com. It can be anything. I mean, I would ask if it were me, I would say, and someone is welcome to steal this question, Richard, is it true that you don't know who does the murders in your books until the last chapter? I was just about to answer then. I thought, but that don't what, answer. what a waste. <laughs> Save it. Uh, and I would essentially ask Marina her opinion on pretty much any celebrity in the world, because it's always brilliant. Pick anyone you're fascinated with. We're and here. I won't hold back. Marina's view. But anything, movies, books, film, TV, culture, gossip. How things work inside the, the industry. Ask away. We can't wait to hear from you. Ask Marina about Omid Scobie, the guy who wrote the uh, the the, uh, the new Royal Family book. Because <laughs> gripped by this she character. She was talking about him beforehand. So, you know, rather than me ask, you can do that. Anything like that you fancy. So it's the rest is entertainment at gmail.com. See you next week, everyone. Bye-bye.